a brand new Netflix series is already one of the most successful in the company's history. Monster, the Jeffrey Dahmer story, has fans going wild over another depiction of a deranged serial killer. As we take a look at not only Dahmer, but the infatuation with the likes of Richard Ramirez, Ted Bundy, and other murderers. And did the famed killer, in fact, give his life to Christ before he was killed? Stay with us as we look at these and other stories on the 511 News. Welcome back to the 511 News. I'm your host, Chad Davidson of Good Fight Ministries. And on today's episode, we're going to be looking at the story of Jeffrey Dahmer and other serial killers, specifically because of a new Netflix special that has come out, a 10-part series that everyone seems to be talking about. And before we get into this, some of the details that we're going to go over are really, really hard to talk about. Some of the things uh, that are going to be depicted in this episode may not be the best to hear for some viewers. So we want to give that warning up front. But one of the things that we do want to bring up is whether or not Jeffrey Dahmer did in fact give his life to Christ. And we're going to be showing video interviews of him saying that, as well as some other warnings that are given not only by Dahmer, but from other serial killers that have been depicted on different shows and movies. But to say all that, it is very interesting to see this very popular show coming out from Netflix covering this story. And for some of the victims' families have already come out and said, hey, this is not great for us to have to relive this over and over again every time someone makes a new movie or writes a new book or does a new show regarding Jeffrey Dahmer. But in terms of pop culture, he is someone who has been popularized over and over again whether in song or depictions, to the point that, in fact, even in modern times, Katy Perry had a featured artist on her song Dark Horse that brought up Jeffrey Dahmer. And so did Kesha, where she talks about eating people just like Jeffrey Dahmer did. But nonetheless, as we see this growing, it is good to bring this up and to talk about it because a number of people, for some reason, right here, in the United States specifically, have an infatuation with serial killers. And the popular show and showing all the high level of numbers of people watching and wanting to find out more about Jeffrey Dahmer, people may think, oh, well, they're just trying to see how wicked this is and point out, wow, that's so sad that all of this happened. But the truth is is that plenty of people are now depicting Jeffrey Dahmer in their video games, making models to then play that look just like The character in the film, which is made after the real person, Jeffrey Dahmer. And this just kind of shows you how depraved people really have become and the lack of a moral compass that people have on the filth that is the TikToks and Twitters of the world where people are just going out there and some people even say they're simping for Jeffrey Dahmer. It's kind of incredible to see people depicting him almost as a hero, and a lot of people using that catchphrase of, well, the villains are just more interesting. And that seems to be very popular in this culture, which makes sense for the culture of death that we are currently in and the lack of love and the loving of pleasure rather than the loving of God that we see so rampant in this world today. 
But he is not the only one with this popularization, even though we've seen some pretty weird stuff, even from the Christian realm. In fact, there has been some t-shirts on sale online that put the word scandalous grace out there and say, hey, this is for Jeffrey Dahmer because he's saved and he's with Jesus and we want to show that God's grace can be scandalous. And can I just put this out here? Can we stop taking adjectives that aren't in the word of God and putting it next to a description of God's attributes or how he showcases his attributes to us? You know, things like reckless love and so forth, like God is reckless and scandalous and and whatnot, and then saying, well, this is my definition of it, and then changing what you mean and changing what the definition is or the colloquial use of it at this time to further your means or to sell t-shirts or records. It's just ridiculous, and we honestly, as Christians, need to not be in that business. The Word of God is living and active, and we can use the adjectives, we can use the pronouns and the verbs and the adverbs that God uses to describe himself rather than trying to make something else up to, I guess, bring about some discussion in order to advertise your material. But nonetheless, this is actually an issue, this idea of people becoming infatuated with the celebritism of serial killers. In fact, psychologists have tried to come up with a term to describe the phenomena of so many people falling in love with serial killers. I know that sounds crazy, but it's true. In fact, when we look at guys like Chris Watts, Ted Bundy, Lyle Menendez, and Scott Peterson, all of these men were written letters by women who fell in love with them while they were on trial for murders they had committed. In fact, when it comes to the Satanist, Richard Ramirez, who went out and killed and raped women ad nauseum, in the, in the late 80s, I mean, guys, the things that he did to women, and yet so many of them, in fact, those in the correctional facility up there in San Francisco where he was, they said they had bags and bags full of letters from women. And in fact, one of the jurors who was listening to the depictions of the things that he was doing to women when he raped and murdered them fell in love with him, and he would actually give her eyes and look into her eyes during the case, and she even baked him a cake to tell him how much she loved him. And a woman who grew up, a, according to herself, a Catholic virgin, ended up marrying him while he was behind bars. And the term that they came up with is habristophilia. And they also call this the Bonnie and Clyde syndrome, and it's when somebody falls in love with somebody who has committed a heinous act. And in fact, a couple of different articles on Psychology Today have actually tried to espouse why someone has fallen in love or why people are falling in love with those who have committed heinous acts. And see, these are some of the reasons that they said that these women or these men would fall in love with someone who's done something so wicked. One is their love can transform the convict from cunning and cruel to caring, concerned, and compassionate. They think that they can change that person. Another one is there's a wounded child nested somewhere inside the killer that can be healed through a devoted nurturance that only they can provide. It comes back 
sadly, to a very narcissistic understanding of I'll be the one that fixes them. And the last one is they might share the killer's media spotlight and so triumphantly emerge for their anonymity and maybe in the process even land a book or a movie deal. Some of them say as well that the idea of writing them letters and being able to actually hear back from them is much more likely, even though they're infamous rather than famous, that if somebody writes a letter to Brad Pitt, they're probably not getting anything back. But if they write it to a serial killer, there's a good chance he might actually indeed write back. And these are just some of the reasons that they've tried to come up with as to why someone could fall in love with somebody who's doing such evil and heinous and horrible things. And so we see this and we see it and we say, wow, how heartbreaking it is that somebody would fall into the arms of the enemy this way, would fall into the arms of somebody who is going to harm them, who will fall into the arms of somebody who has harmed people over and over again, but maybe you'll be the one who's a little different. And it's interesting because, as I mentioned, Richard Ramirez, he himself had fallen to the arms of Satan himself. In fact, when we look back at it and in a documentary that was actually done, Richard Ramirez had said quite clearly that he believed that Satan was guiding him and was keeping him safe. And in fact, there were some things that took place that were kind of crazy that he did sneak out. In fact, he was pulled over at one point and put his hand on the car And the cops messed up and put his car back into a lot and the son roasted off what would have actually caught him at the time and stopped others from being murdered by him because the fingerprints were actually melted off. And in fact, right before he was caught, he felt that Satan had actually left him and stopped being there for him. And when you find out some of these stories, it's pretty heartbreaking. Even when it comes to Jeffrey Dahmer, that he had a 14-year-old boy that left his house bloody, and the cops actually saw that boy and brought him back to Jeffrey. And he just said it was a lover's quarrel with a 14-year-old boy, and the cops left him back with Jeffrey. I mean, these are some of the things that happened that took place where they should have got caught, and yet they didn't because of incompetence, negligence, or otherwise. It's really, really heartbreaking. But Jeffrey Dahmer actually tells us why he believes he went down this road, why he believes he actually went down and started killing people. And some of it has to do with what the Bible describes in 1 Timothy chapter 4 as a seared conscience. And other things that he had done are described by not having any moral compass. As you're going to see in these clips, he's going to talk about with Stone Phillips, the very famous interview that he did while he was behind bars not long before he would actually be killed by a fellow inmate. And listen to him talk right here about why he started doing this and what took place and what changed in his heart and where he is at that point. Your dad has wondered about all kinds of things, from the medication that your mom was on during her pregnancy to the fact that you were exposed to violent arguments in the home from an early age and continuing, to the possibility that he might have passed on some genetic propensity for obsession or violent behavior. Does any of that ring true to you? I can see why he'd wonder about those things, but uh, as far as I'm concerned, they're all excuses. 
because I didn't feel accountable to anybody. I didn't feel that I had to to uh, face what I had done ever. And uh, so you, you have there comes a point where a person has to has to be accountable for what he's done. Can't go can't go around making excuses, uh, blaming other people or other things. So I, I alone am the one who's responsible for what's happened. Let me ask, when did you first feel that, that everyone is accountable for their actions? Well, thanks to you for, for sending uh, that uh, creation science uh, material. Because I always, I always believe the, uh, the lie that uh, evolution is truth, the theory of evolution is truth, that we all just came from uh, the slime and uh, when, we, when we died, you know, that was it. There was nothing. So it, the whole theory cheapens life and uh, started reading books about how, that show how evolution is, is just a complete lie. There's, there's, no, there's no basis in science to, to uphold it. And I've come to, since come to believe that uh, that the Lord Jesus Christ is the true creator of uh, the heavens and the earth. It just didn't just happen. And uh, I have accepted him as my Lord and Savior. And I believe that I, as, long, as well as everyone else, will be accountable to him. At that period of time, I had drifted away from a belief in a supreme being. And I never, as a result, passed along the feeling that we are all accountable in the end. He owns us. And that basic concept is very fundamental to all of us. You feel that the absence, at least for a while, of a strong religious faith and yes. belief for some years may have prevented you from instilling some of that in Jeff. That's right. Is that how you feel? Yes, I think I had a big, uh, big part to do, to do with it. I mean, uh, if you don't, if a person doesn't think that there there is a God to be accountable to, then then what's what's the point of of trying to uh, modify your behavior to keep it within acceptable ranges? That's how I thought anyway, and uh, I've since come to believe that uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is truly God, uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're the only true God. Interestingly enough, when you listen to that, you hear this specific argument that he was taught that really there is no, none of this matters. Ultimately, that we are just the process, the blind process of evolution, and there's no transcendent God, there's no moral compass, and so there's really no difference. Who cares if this person lives or dies? It should have no effect on him. And it was those very things and that thought process that None of this mattered. So when he wanted to control another human being and keep them with him, he didn't look at that person as if they were imago Dei, made in the image of God. And so therefore he said, what's the difference between you and anything else? Who cares? In fact, he is not the only one. And this is another one where a show depicted Ted Bundy, another serial killer, and Netflix was a part of that one as well, as Zac Efron played the lead in Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil, and Vile. And he played Ted Bundy, and Ted Bundy, when it comes to his own killing, actually said he had the same views, really, that Mr. Dahmer did. 
I learned that all moral judgments are value judgments, that all value judgments are subjective, and that none can be proved to be either right or wrong. Why is it more wrong to kill a human animal than any other animal, a pig or a sheep or a steer? Is your life more to you than a hog's life to a hog? Why should I be willing to sacrifice my pleasure more for the one than for the other? Surely you would not, in this age of scientific enlightenment, declare that God or nature has marked some pleasures as moral or good and others as immoral or bad. In any case, let me assure you, my dear young lady, that there is absolutely no comparison between the pleasure I might take in eating ham and the pleasure I anticipate in raping and murdering you. That is the honest conclusion to which my education has led me. Now that clip that you just watched is actually from a video where we detail not only Richard Ramirez but Ted Bundy as well as we go through Adam Levine's song where he talks about preying on women, not praying, but going after them as if they are, in fact, prey. And it is very interesting to hear him say something very, very similar. And that's not the only thing that Bundy and Dahmer had in common, because both of them talk about, and as I mentioned earlier, a seared conscience. But there's also something, and we did an entire series titled Satan's Sex Schemes, to show quite clearly that the sex scheme that Satan has gotten away with here in the United States and all over the world is getting porn in front of people's eyes and how the normalization, and it used to just be you'd have to go and you're going to hear him talk about it, going and buying different materials and so forth, and now it's on the phone all day, and whether or not you're actually on porn sites or simply Instagram or otherwise, most of it's Pornography, I don't want to say most of it, but a lot of pornography is just right there thrown in your faces. And now there's a personalized way with OnlyFans and these other avenues by which men can pay women to be have their own private pornography websites. It's really heartbreaking. But I want you to see the warning given not only by Bundy, but also uh, the statement of, hey, how did you start going down this path with Dahmer? How did you start killing again? And this is exactly what both of them have to say regarding pornography and murder. What I'm trying to tell you as honestly as I know how what happened, and I think this is a message I want to get across. But as a young, a young boy, and I mean the boy of uh, 12 or 13, certainly, uh, that I encountered outside the home again uh, in... Uh, the local grocery store, the local uh, uh, drugstore, the softcore pornography, what people call softcore. Um, but as I think I, I explained to you last night, Dr. Dobson, in an anecdote, uh, that as young boys do, we explored the, the back roads and sideways and byways of our neighborhood, and oftentimes people would dump the garbage and whatever they were cleaning out of their house, and from time to time we'd come across. So, pornographic books of a harder nature than uh, more uh, graphic, you might say, more explicit nature than we would encounter, let's say, in your local grocery store. And this also included such things as, let's say, detective magazines and uh, more hard Those that involve violence. Yes, yes. Yeah. And, I, I, and this is something I think I want to emphasize is the, 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 the most damaging uh, uh, kinds of pornography. And again, I'm talking from personal experience. 
uh, hard, real, personal experience. The most damaging kinds of pornography are those that involve violence and, and sexual violence. Because the wedding of those two forces, as, as I know only too well, brings about behavior that is just, uh, mm. is just uh, too terrible to describe. Now walk me through that. What was going on in your mind at that time? Okay, before we go any further, I think you know, it's important to me and, uh, and that, people, that people believe what I'm saying, to tell you that, that I'm not blaming pornography and not saying that it caused me to go out and do certain things and I take full responsibility for whatever I've done and all the things that I've done that's not the question here the question and, and, and the issue is how this kind of literature contributed and helped mold and, and shape the kinds of violent behavior it fueled your fantasies well in in the beginning it fuels this kind of thought process then, it, at a certain time, it's instrumental in what I would say crystallizing it, making it, making it into something which is almost an, like a separate entity inside. And that in, at that point, you're at the verge, or I was at the verge of acting out on this on this kind of these kinds of thoughts. Now, I really want to understand that you had gone about as far as you could go in your own fantasy life mm -hmm. with printed material, and you made or printed and video or film Photo, or film photos, magazines yeah. what have you yeah. and and then there was the urge to take that little step or big step over to a physical right. uh, event and it happens it, it happened in stages gradually it doesn't necessarily not to me at least happen overnight my experience with I say pornography generally but with pornography that deals on a violent level with the sexuality um, is that once you become addicted to it, and I look at this as a kind of addiction, uh, like other kinds of addiction, of addiction, you keep, I would keep looking for more potent, more explicit, more it's graphic kinds of material. Like an addiction, you keep craving something which is harder, harder, something which, which gives you a greater uh, sense of, uh, of uh, excitement. Until you reach the point where the pornography only goes so far, you reach that jumping off point where you begin to wonder if, if maybe actually doing it will give you that which is beyond just reading about it or looking at it. I started reading pornography, going to the bookstores. Um, eventually that led to uh, frequenting the gay bars and then I one time I brought this uh, young man back to the hotel room, the Ambassador Hotel uh, was just planning on drugging him and uh, spending the night with him. Had no intention of hurting him. When I woke up in the morning, he uh, had a broken rib here. I was heavily bruised. Apparently, I had uh, beaten him to death with my fists. And you have no memory I of it? I have no memory of it. But that's what started the whole spree all over again. You know, one of the interesting things there is that it really does seem, and if you know anything about Dahmer's story, even in that interview right before that, they talk about how he was kicked out of the military because of drunkenness. And the Bible actually tells us in Ephesians 5.18 that we are not to be drunk with wine, which causes di dissipation. It leads to more sin, but we should be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the heartbreaking thing is that when we see all of this disgustingness, we need to also recognize that 
guess what? There is a Savior. I know that's a hard line to switch from, but there is a Savior. And I had one of my uh, wrestlers actually text me a message because he had watched the Dahmer series and he's away he's, uh, in Florida. And he asked in our group, hey, do you think Jeffrey Dahmer was really a Christian? Do you think that's true, that he actually gave his life to Christ in the end? And I said, I can't really know that. The Bible says that love hopes all things, but I can't actually know whether or not it was a sincere conversion when he recognized the things that he had done. One of the good things in that interview is he does talk about the regret that he had, and he was thinking and regretting about some of the things that he had done, and that is good for him to do. But one of the things that sticks out to me is the understanding of Tetelestai, the understanding that our salvation and our sins, when it comes to them being paid for on the cross, were Tetelestai. They were paid in full, and that's what I tried to express to my wrestlers when they I was in a group text and they were asking me about Jeffrey Dahmer, because the Bible says in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 13, that, that specifically we as believers, or we who have converted, have come to Christ and have metanoi, have repented, and had a change of heart and mind that leads to also a change of action, that when we turn to him, we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth Jesus as Lord, and that all who call in the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, that statement says that anyone can make that statement. In fact, Paul the Apostle said that there is something that needs to be accepted by all people, that this statement needs to be accepted that Christ came to save sinners, of which I am the worst. So if we understand the wickedness of our own sin, the darkness of the sin that we have committed, then we aren't looking at how could anyone be saved after the terrible things they did, this specific person or that specific person, but that we look at the grounds of justification, which is the blood of Jesus Christ, and only through his blood, Can our sins be atoned for? So was Jeffrey Dahmer saved? I can't know his heart. I know that confession sounded like a good confession of the faith in Jesus Christ, that he is the one true God and there is no other gods. But guess what? Ultimately, I can't know that. But I would ask this of you, the same thing that Jesus asked to Peter. Not who do they say to I am, some say Elijah and so forth, but who do you say that I am? And I ask you that right now. Can you say, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I mean, have you turned to him and put your trust in him? Because if you have not, if you have not put your trust in him, then the wrath of God abides on you right now. And I would encourage you right now to turn to him. He is a good savior. He will forgive. His arms are not too short to save. Come to him and he will not cast you out. Come to him and he will embrace you. And at the end of your life, when you pass on, you will hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter in to the joy of the Lord. This has been Chad Davidson, and this is the 511 News. The 511 News with Chad Davidson has been brought to you by Good Fight Ministries, bringing you news and commentary from a Christian perspective. This show can be heard every Friday wherever podcast shows are available or visit 511news.org. Thank you for joining us, and we look forward to being with you next week on the 511 News.